Mark chapter number 2 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the Word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately, aren't you thankful for an immediately kind of salvation? Not on an installment plan. When the Lord saves someone, He saves them immediately. And immediately He arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Let's read once more verse number 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this time that you've given us. I thank you for the privilege of being able to be in your house with your people, your Holy Ghost, and your Word. I pray, Father, that it would all be about your Son this morning, that you would speak to each and every heart. Lord, it is beyond the realm of men's eloquence to speak to hearts. We can speak to ears, we can speak to minds, but only Your Word can speak to the hearts of men. So I pray, Father, that You would accomplish that for Your glory and honor. If there's any amongst us lost, I pray they'd be saved before we leave this place this morning. I pray if there's any that have drifted from You, they'd be drawn back close. Lord, any that are discouraged, they'd be encouraged. Father, any that are proud, they'd be abased but that in all things your Son would be high and holy and lifted up amongst us this morning. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I've always been fascinated with Mark chapter number 2. There's something about the beauty of the image that is set before us. You can see the hopelessness of this man that is sick of the palsy. You can see the determination of the men that carry him to the Lord. You can imagine the discouragement when they saw the house just cram-packed full and overflowing. You can see the look of illumination when someone says, well, let's just take him up to the roof and see if they got a skylight. You can see the look of mischievousness when they get up there and there's no skylight and one of them says, we got a good excuse to tear something up now, amen. And they begin to peel 
fell back the roof. You can imagine the look of delight and divine uh, illumination upon the face of the magnificent Son of God as that man is lowered down into the room into the presence of Jesus Christ. You can imagine the look of excitement and of jubilation upon that man's face whenever the Lord says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. You can see the look of displeasure on the face of the Pharisees when they say within themselves, who can forgive sins uh, but God alone? You can imagine uh, the look of righteous indignation upon the look of uh, the face of the Savior when He looks upon them and says, what would be easier? Is it any easier to uh, forgive sins than it is for a man to rise and walk? You can imagine the absolute look of elatement and of hope and of a new day and of a new birth when that man, his ankles begin to immediately receive strength and he rises up, takes up his bed and walks off. And you can imagine the look of amazement when folks turned to each other and said, we never saw it on this fashion before. Surely if you could go to that town of Capernaum, if you could roll back the clock, if you could put the sand back in the top of the hourglass and stand at this place, you would be awestruck by the things that you saw. But as I read this passage, there is one phrase that arrests my attention this morning. And I want us to preach on it for just a few moments. Look again at verse number 5. Now, as you read this verse, there's two words that may not strike you as very interesting. Let's read it once and we'll see if it strikes you as interesting. Then we'll read it a second time with emphasis. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Did you catch what was unique about that verse? There's something in this verse that's not found in any place in the Word of God except in the the three gospel accounts that give us the story that we've read before us. You'll not find this coupling of words anywhere else in the Word of God. You could go from Genesis to Malachi, you'd not find this phrase used. You could go from John to Revelation, you'd not find it used. You could go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and aside from this gospel narrative that is before us, you'd not find it except the three times that it's mentioned in connection with this story. Let's read it once more. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he saith unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. There's something unique about this passage. As you draw your mind's eye back to the image that's before you, you would have looked at the man sick of the palsy. You would have looked at the roof being torn off. Uh, you know, that's how folks are. If there's a car wreck, you're going to rubberneck to look at. If there's destruction, you know, it'll sell. And, and you'd look at the roof being torn off. You would have probably looked at the Son of God and the look upon His face. I know I probably would have. You might have looked at the Pharisees and looked upon their face. You surely would have been watching when that man that had never walked, that man that had been sick of the palsy, that man that was hopeless and helpless when his legs received strength and he got up and lifted up his bed. You would have been watching then. And you might have even looked around at the look on the faces of the folks that were amazed. But do you know where God was looking in Mark chapter number 2? He was looking at their faith. You see, we have the idea of collective faith mentioned for us in Mark chapter number 2. We have to be very careful when we talk about collective faith, lest we use uh, maybe some terminology that has been poisoned and polluted by folks that are not scriptural. When I say collective faith, I don't just mean folks binding together with some kind of covenant. When I say collective faith, I don't just mean the collective goodwill of men towards one another. 
But I mean that we see in this passage five characters, every which had faith that Jesus could make a difference. You say, how do you know, preacher, that all five of them had faith? We're told that this man was born of four. That means, that don't mean he had uh, four mamas or four daddies or two mamas or two daddies. But what it means is that he was carried by four men. Each of them grabbed a corner of this man's bed and purposed in their hearts to get him to Jesus. Now, you'll never convince me that that's not an act of faith. But then there's a fifth man that had faith, and it was the sick of the palsy. You say, preacher, why do you believe that? Because there is no precedent in the Word of God for one person's faith to be imputed for the faith of another, other than for the justification of Jesus Christ for the sinner. In other words, you can't believe for your children. Your children have to put their faith in Jesus Christ. You can't believe for your parents. They have to put their faith in Jesus Christ if they're going to be saved. When I got saved, it wasn't because I had a believing mama or daddy. Now, that contributed to the circumstances that facilitated my salvation. I'm aware of that. That's what got me under the sound of the gospel. But I had been under the sound of the gospel for 10 years of my life. Some of you had been under the sound of the gospel for 20 years and 30 years and 40 years and 50 years, and that's not what made the difference. What made the difference was when you in faith turned to Jesus Christ and trusted Him. So that tells me that the man sick of the palsy must have had faith as well. And yet when the Word of God speaks of faith, it speaks of all of their faith. It could have said when he saw his faith, he said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And that would have been equally true. Certainly it was this man's faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that caused his righteousness to be imputed to him. Certainly it was his personal faith. But the Word of God does not say that. It says uh, in uh, verse number 5 that the thing that caught the attention of the Son of God was the faith of all five of these men. Do you know, and let me just put it as simply as I can, do you know that you can have a part in someone coming to know Jesus Christ? You can have a part. Now, I'm not saying your faith is what saves them. But there was somebody that had faith in Jesus Christ, and they were the reason that I got the gospel. If it hadn't been for them believing that Jesus Christ could make a difference, I would have never been saved. Some of you in this room can point backwards to somebody that was instrumental in you coming to know Jesus Christ. And you could say that if it hadn't been for that person that loved the Lord, that trusted the Lord, that knew the Lord, then I would have never been born again. You see, it was your faith that God saw when He saved you, but their faith was not lost on God either in God working in your heart and life. At this place, this man is very unlikely to ever see a difference in his life. He was a man sick of the palsy. It was a detrimental disease, and it it rendered him helpless. He couldn't get up and take himself to Jesus. Do you know that the sinner can't take themselves? The sinner can't take themselves. Now, this is coming from somebody that no one led me to the Lord. We know that. Most of you that have been going here any amount of time, you've heard my testimony. I was alone. I was in my bedroom. I had heard the gospel, I had, I had been taught the gospel, but there was no one that took a Roman's road or took a gospel track. The Holy Ghost convicted me and showed me my need of, of salvation. And I think that, I think God did that for a reason. Now this is personal opinion and you don't have to believe this, but I think God did that for a reason because He knew what an impact that would make in the ministry. He knew that there's lots of folks that have turned this thing of soul winning into a mechanized effort that if you just take a a dash of ingredient A 
and a little bit of ingredient B and a pinch of ingredient C and swirl it all together and stick it under the nose of a sinner and they read a few words and they answer a few questions that they've been born again. Now, can I say that salvation is as simple as reading a few words? For the Word of God says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Word of God says, Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So it is just a matter of reading a few words. It is just a matter of answering a few questions. Not necessarily to a soul winner, but answering them to God. God looks at a sinner and says, will you acknowledge you're a sinner? And a sinner says, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. God looks at a sinner and says, uh, do you believe that my son uh, died upon the cross for your sins? And a sinner must in his heart look towards heaven. Yes, Lord, I believe that. He may not say it, he may not even vocalize it in his mind, but he must believe it in his heart. But can I say, just because you can stick a gospel track under someone's nose, just because you can drag them through a prayer, that doesn't mean that they got saved. Were they sincere in their heart? Now, I'm not trying to cast doubt, and I'm not trying to cause people to doubt their salvation. I know some churches, the only folks they ever see saved are those that they preach into being lost that were saved in the first place. And I'm not advocating that by any means. But I'm merely saying this, that the reason I came to know Jesus Christ was because someone had faith, someone made a difference in my life. And some of you have loved ones and people that you care about. Some of you have friends and family members. We're at that time of the year where we're surrounded by family, like it or not, amen? <laughs> we're surrounded by family. They're all around. We're spending. There's people that you're going to see in the next few weeks that you won't see for another year, and it's likely and possible that you may never see again. What impact are you going to make in their life in the next few weeks? I don't mean in the next few years. God may give you the next few years, and I hope He does. But I, I'm talking about in the next few weeks. I'm talking about that aunt or uncle that you only see at Christmas time that has never come to know Christ. That mother or that father. That son or that daughter that doesn't come around home anymore and you're praying for them. Are you going to make an impact in their life? I believe you can. I believe that God recognized their faith, and I believe God can recognize our faith. It's not that if we have faith, God is going to force them to be saved, but it is this. I believe, and can I just put it as simply as I know how, the thing that caused the Savior to look this man's way was the faith of these four men. You know that we can get God's attention about a matter. I know that's very strange language. I know God is consciously aware of everything and every moment at all times. But there is no question that there is a sense in which God turns His attention towards a particular matter and begins to deal with it in an extraordinary way. I still believe in intercessory prayer. I still believe in praying for the lost. I heard one fellow one time, he said, you know, the Bible never says anything about praying for the lost to be saved. And that sounds good, you know. The only problem with it is it's wrong. <laughs> because Paul said, brethren, my heart's desire, my heart's prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. I believe in praying for the lost. I believe in God burdening the heart of a believer for an individual and making that person your mission in the throne room of God to call their name towards heaven. I'm not talking about badgering them. I'm not talking about embarrassing them. But I'm talking about spending some serious time alone with your hands around the horns of the altar and begging God to intervene in their life. 
I see five things in this passage, and can I give them to you very quickly? Five things about their faith that I think God recognized. You know, God honors faith because faith honors God. And I believe when God's honored by faith, and He always is, that God chooses to respond. And there's five things, I believe, that honored God in this passage. Let me say, first off, I believe their compassion was an extraordinary thing. This man had been sick of the palsy. We do not have a lot of details about this man. We do not know for how many years he had been sick. It could have been from a child. It could have just been the past few years. We do not know. But these men, when they did not have to, took a personal interest in this man's well-being. Can I just clue you in on something? And I'm cluing myself in at the same time because my flesh needs to hear this just like yours does. You're not a soul winner unless you take a personal interest in people. That you have no reason to other than to win them to Christ. Now that's just the truth of it. I'm talking about unless your mindset is who can I win. Then don't, don't say you're a soul winner. You see a soul winner is someone whose main business is winning souls. And not just that of close friends and family. Now it ought to be. But of anyone that they can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This thing, soul winner and winning souls, has become something of a terminology that we use oftentimes for people that really have no interest in winning folks to Christ, but know it's biblical, and so they do what they have to do to escape from the guilt of having to have compassion and reach out to folks. You know what a real soul winner is? A real soul winner is someone that seeks out people that no one else will seek out to try to win them. A real soul winner is someone that when he sees someone that offends him or someone that does something uh, that is an affront to him, when he sees someone uh, that sin has wrapped its chains of bondage around, where sin has dragged down down to the lowest parts of the miry pit, when a soul winner sees that individual, he does not scoff, he does not roll his eyes, but he looks at them and he says, there's somebody that needs Jesus Christ. These men could have walked on like anyone else. We don't know the relationship that these men had with this man sick of the palsy. They could have been family. It could have been they were carrying their, their nephew or their uncle or their son or their brother. We do not know. We do not know if they may have been friends. Maybe they grew up together. But you know, the things that, that God's Word is silent on is just as important as the things that God's Word speaks on. And I believe that the relationship of these four men to this man that is sick of the palsy is not denoted or divulged for a reason because it didn't matter what that relationship was. The truth of the matter is these four men saw somebody that Jesus Christ could make a difference in his life and said, I'm going to take about that person even though no one else does ain't no telling how many people passed this palsy man on the way to the house that day the Bible says the house was full it was overflowing that you couldn't even get in it you couldn't even get close to it I wonder Capernaum wasn't a big place I wonder how many people passed by the doorstep of this man sick of the palsy that day you see they was on the way to get their blessing I'm not against getting blessed We need a blessing. We need the blessing of God in our life. I'm not against getting a blessing. But I wonder how many of us are so focused on getting ours that we don't ever see those that don't ever get any. I wonder how many of us are are, are so concerned. And, And you know what compassion really is? I've given this definition before, but can I give it to you this morning? Compassion is being emotionally inconvenienced for the sake of another. Being emotionally inconvenienced for the sake of another. 
seeing someone that you could very well walk on past, just like they could have done with this man that was sick of the palsy. But instead, you open your heart up to them, and you say, I'll love them like Jesus loved them. I'll love them. I I won't wait for them to get right to love them, because Jesus didn't wait for me to get right to love me. God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for me to get right to love me. And we don't need to wait for the sinner to get right to love them. We need to see people that are in need of Christ and open our heart. Or you know what the Bible says? This is very interesting. You know what the Bible says in the book of First uh, John, speaking about faith? It said, How if a man see his brother in need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Isn't it interesting that it didn't say his bowels of finances? It didn't say his bowels of pity. You know, there's a difference between pity and compassion. Uh, Pity is when you acknowledge the suffering of another, but compassion is when you embrace the suffering of another. And isn't it interesting? It says bowels of compassion. It's not just that you reach out. It's not just that you feel sorry for him, but it's that you literally open yourself up on the inside emotionally and you're willing to hurt for them. They had compassion upon this man. They took an interest in this man. They didn't have to. Nobody would have blamed them. It's interesting that that Christ did not rebuke any of the folks that were at that house that day. Do you know that He was the Son of God? He knew who could have brought this man. But He did not rebuke any of these people. Instead, He acknowledged those that had made the effort. And it's easy sometimes just to walk on past It's easy just to dismiss folks. It's easy just to build a barrier sometimes. Say, I'm not going to love them anymore because if I love them, they're going to hurt me. But understand that if they're in need of Jesus Christ, they're just doing what they know to do. And they need Christ to make the difference in their life. I want you to notice first off their compassion, but secondly, I want you to notice their confidence. Their confidence. There was a lot of things that these men did not know. They did not know what they would find when they got to this house. They did not know what it would look like. I'm convinced that they didn't. You say, why, preacher? Because if they had known that there was no chance of getting in, they may have not gone. They didn't know what they would find. They didn't know there would be multitudes there. They didn't know if there was a way to let them in, even if there was multitudes. They didn't know, but they knew one thing. They knew if they could get him to Jesus Christ, that it would make all the difference. There's one thing I know, church. There's one thing I know. I do not know what holds in the future for each and every person in this room. I don't know how much time we have. Whether by death or by the Lord's return, if you're saved, I don't know how much time we have. I don't know what is in store for our country. I'm just being honest. And I don't mean that as doom and I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the next few years. There's nothing, listen to me, there's nothing that could occur politically in our country that would surprise me anymore. There's nothing. I do not know. I I, I do not know. But I do know this. I do know that the answer is still salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. I do know. I don't know what's going to happen in the lives of your loved ones. I can't tell you that it'll always be a bed of roses. 
But I can promise you this. If you have a loved one whose life is wrecked, or maybe, listen, maybe their life isn't wrecked, but it's about to be wrecked. And they've never come to know Jesus Christ. I do not know what tonight or tomorrow will hold, but I know that if you can get them to Jesus Christ, that He can make a difference in their life. There's a lot of things they didn't know, but they knew if they could get Him to Christ. They knew that. There's a lot of things in the Word of God that are important. And listen, there's a lot of things in the Word. Everything is important in the Word of God. There are some things that are more important. One of the great mistakes that churches and pastors make is in thinking that the things that are less important are not important at all. Everything in the Word of God is important. Everything. But it's not lost upon me that there is one chief theme and great truth and grand ideal in the Word of God that is preeminent above other things, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ and through Him alone. And there's a lot of things that we can be wrong upon, but that's one truth that you cannot be wrong upon. There's a lot of truths that your loved ones can be wrong about. I'm, I'm being honest, a lot of truths. You've got loved ones, I'm sure, that are wrong about what they believe about the Bible. I've got loved ones that way. That won't send them to hell. I'm being honest now. I'm being honest. Now, are we, are, we, are we going to be King James only or are we going to be King James ugly this morning? That won't send them to hell, reading other versions of the Bible. That doesn't mean it's not important, but that won't send them to hell. But there is one truth that they cannot be wrong upon, and that is that they can't put their faith in anything other than the finished work of Christ on Calvary. That and that alone must be what they are trusting in to get them to heaven. If they're trusting in church membership, if they're trusting in their baptism, if they're trusting in their good works or their heritage, it will not avail them when they die and meet God. They must, they must, they must have put their faith in the finished work of Christ on Calvary and in nothing else and in nothing less. I see their confidence. They knew one truth, if we can but get them to Christ. And there's some of you that have burned a lot of bridges trying to turn your loved ones into independent Baptists, when what they really need is to be saved. Oh, I think if a person gets saved, you know, the Bible is what makes us Baptist. The Bible. I'm not a Baptist because my parents were Baptists. I'm a Baptist because the Bible leads me to be a Baptist but understand that they can be an independent Baptist and still die and go to hell if they've never met Christ. There's some of us that have spent a lot of time trying to get our loved ones right on doctrine when they're wrong about their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm just simply saying this this morning. Though there are things that are less important in varying degrees, they're all important. But there is one chief truth that is preeminent, and that is salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. I see their confidence. Notice, number three, I see their carrying of Him. What does it say in verse number three? It says, which was born of four. They come bringing one that was sick of the palsy. They were carrying Him. They understood this truth, that though they may not be able to get Christ to Him, they could get him to Christ. 
Now here's an, here's an interesting paradox in soul winning. Is that in some ways we cannot get the sinner to Christ. So we must take Christ to Him concerning what's temporal, visible, and earthly. You can't just drag your loved one down a church aisle and get them saved. They've got to be willing to be saved. You can't browbeat them and beat them over the head and expect that that will get them saved. No, they must willingly come to Christ. You see, on this side of the veil, we can't get them to Christ, but we can get Christ to them. But here's the irony. On the other side of the veil, in the presence of God, we can't bring Christ to them, but we can carry them to Christ through our prayer life. Through our prayer life. They were willing to carry Him into the presence of Christ if the difference could be made. I've said this before and I'll say it again this morning. If you're not praying for that loved one, it could very well be there's no one praying for them. Some of us, and this may not be true of all of us, in fact, I hope it's not true of your family, but you may be the most spiritual person in your family. You're here this morning... On a Sunday morning, you could be a thousand other places. No doubt you have loved ones, brothers or sisters or, or, or friends or family that are laying at home that could be in the house of God today. And it may be that you are the most spiritual person in your family. It could be that you are the only one that is on praying ground. Or it may be that you're the only one that actually knows Christ as their Savior. And if you're not praying for your loved one, it could be that no one's praying for them. Could be. These four said, if no one else will carry him, I'll carry him. If no one else will pray for him, I'll pray for him. I'm very concerned about this prayer culture that we live in today. It's akin to the Facebook Christianity culture that we live in today. You say, preacher, you against Facebook? Well, yeah, but I got one anyway. <laughs> I'd love to get rid of it, but you know, you you get all them friends and and you know how that is. They ain't really your friends. If it's time to move and you started calling, you ought to do that. Next time you have to move, start calling your Facebook friends. And if they say anything, go back through your Facebook and say, no, we've been friends for four years. You see this? I can give you the day that we became friends. You see, part of the danger in this society and culture of, of Facebook Christianity is that prayer has become nothing but a cheapened word that's used in the same vein as the idea of well-wishing or condolences. People will say things like, I'm sending prayers your way. Well, I don't send prayers my way. I can't answer prayers. Send prayers God's way. Because God's able to answer. I don't send the prayers my way. If I could fix it, I would have already fixed it. I'm the one that's made a mess of things. If you want to pray for me, don't send them my way. Send them God's way. You say, oh, preacher, you're splitting hairs and you're nitpicking. No, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that the reason that kind of language is often used is because the idea of prayer is something that's been cheapened. It's just a hallmark word to a lot of folks. And there's a lot of folks that when they say they're praying for you, they don't mean it. Probably the greatest lie told in the church today is, I'm praying for you. 
You see, the truth is, these folks were willing to, to carry him when no one would carry him. Christ isn't upon this earth in, in physical bodily form. We can't, we can't take our loved ones physically to him. But what we can do is determine that on the other side of the veil, in the throne room of God, that we can, in that place, in the presence of God, take their name and bear it before an Almighty Lord and before an interceding Savior. We can call their name to God and say, Lord, I beg you, I beg you, I beg you to intervene in their life and show them their need. God won't forcibly save anyone. But He can. He can make it awfully tough on them. And that's not what we should necessarily pray for. We should pray for whatever will get their attention. I know there's folks that's scared about praying about that. Let me tell you something. God loves your loved one more than you love your loved one. God cares more about them than you care about them. He's not going to do anything beyond what He has to do to get their attention. And whatever God does will be right. See, they were willing to carry Him. Notice, fourthly, their cooperativeness. They could have been like a lot of Christians and said, I don't need three others. I'll carry them myself. But here's the truth. There's a job to be done that could only be done by four. Just one couldn't do it. And so they had to get the help of others. I, listen, I'm as independent as independent gets. I'm saying I'm so independent Baptist, I don't even like myself. Amen. I, I mean, I, I understand that. But sometimes in our endeavor to be so independently minded, we've grown scared of that word cooperativeness. And I'm not for yoking up with anything ungodly, and I'm not for robbing the autonomy of the local church, and I'm not for instituting or installing anything, be it be it man, uh, be it missions organization, or, or be it convention, anything that would usurp authority from the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the kind of cooperativeness I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about being cooperative in our efforts to try to win folks in our individual lives to Jesus Christ. You know, one of the greatest things you'll ever do, once you've got a handle on praying for someone's salvation, one of the greatest things you'll ever do is find somebody else that you know that prays and say, would you pray with me about their salvation? Pray with me. I've got a grandchild. Would you pray for them? I've got a son. I've got a daughter. Would you pray for them? I've got a mama or a daddy. And I need someone that prays to pray for them. I believe there's strength in numbers, don't you? I know everybody thinks that Abe Lincoln came up with that, but you know, that's Bible. <laughs> there's strength in numbers. And a, a, a fourfold cord is, is more difficult to be broken. I believe that when we determine that we're going to pray about a matter, I believe it helps us to find other people to pray with us and to keep us accountable in our prayer life. You know, there's a great danger in our prayer life, being relegated to something akin to a child's Christmas list. We ask for something, then forget whether we ever got it or whether we ever asked for it, and then we're surprised when it shows up under the tree. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is the conscious, intelligent... Now, when I say intelligent, don't get nervous. I don't mean smart. I just mean, and let me say this, and I'm almost done, I'm going to hurry. But I am against this contemplative prayer movement. Now, some of you say, well, preacher, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's a lot of big-name Bible teachers, a lot of people that, that churches 
are using for Bible studies and that's into this contemplative prayer movement. It's an old Jesuit practice called Lectio Divina. You know what it is? It's the idea of, of communion with God through meditation. I know the Word of God uses the term meditation, but it's not speaking of the idea of emptying one's mind and, and focusing on a thought or an ideal, but rather it's the idea of sitting in conscious contemplation upon the Word of God or the person of God. That's the meditation of Scripture. Uh, none of this putting your fingers together in the home. No, none of that. And this contemplative prayer movement is dangerous. You know why? Because it allow, it affords a false emotional experience for the lost individual to deceive them into believing that they have communion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, even, even religions of Eastern mysticism can produce an emotional euphoria. That's the reason that they practice those things, is because it produces some sort of emotional uh, nirvana or emotional euphoria. And that's the very same thing that is infiltrating much of contemporary Christianity through the contemplative prayer movement. Let me just say God's people need to be warned about that. That's not prayer. Prayer is the conscious, intelligent conversation and communion with a living God that takes place in the heart and mind of the believer. I think we need to get to the place where we're willing to to try to draw others into the place where they'd be willing to pray, to, to encourage others to pray. Not just to say, oh, yeah, I'm praying. All prayers for you. But find somebody that'll say, I'll pray about that matter. And somebody that's sincere and somebody that means it. We see their cooperativeness. Now, let me just say one final word and I'm done. We see their commitment. Their commitment. Now, I I don't believe in denominationalism per se. I I don't believe you can really trace the heritage of the the Baptist church back to John the Baptist. If you believe that, that's fine. We can can fight about it later if you want, like good Baptists. But uh, I, I do have trouble believing that these folks were Baptists. You say, preacher, why? Because if they were Baptists, you would have thought they would have given up a lot sooner and a lot easier. They get to the house, they've carried this man who knows how far. And they get to the house, and you can imagine the look on their face when they get there. And the crowd is so vast and so thick that there's no chance of them getting in there. And you can imagine, now this is a little sanctified imagination, I know that. You won't, don't look for it, you'll tear up your concordance trying to find this. But I can just see one of them kind of looking at the other one and saying, well, I guess that's it. I guess we better go on home. And I can see one old boy looking at the other one and saying, no, we're not going home. We've carried him all this way. If it was important enough to pick him up, then it's important enough to go a little farther. Saying, pick up your corner. We're going to figure something out. They go up on top of the roof, oriental roofs, and and roofs in the Middle East are typically flat, have an area for sunbathing, things like that. And, And... Upon the top of the roof, they looked down, and there was no way, no means to get inside. I can see another one saying, well, listen, I mean, we can't go tearing up this person's house. Let's just go home. But they understood this eternal truth, that there's nothing that ranks higher on the priority list than a person's salvation. You know what I've heard people say before? Now, I don't advocate obnoxiousness in witnessing. I've known some folks that that was the only way they knew how to witness was to be obnoxious. 
And, and the folks that, that, uh, that they had won to Christ in their life, you could just about fit them in, in, in a phone booth that's already occupied. I don't advocate being obnoxious in witnessing or trying to win people. But I've heard people make this statement before. Oh, you don't need to tell them about Christ. You don't need to witness to them. You're going to drive them away. And I've always thought to myself, well, where are you going to drive them to? They're already on their way to hell. Where are you going to drive them to? They're already on their way to hell. We need to get over this thing of trying to keep up social appearances. We need to get over this thing of trying to keep up a comfortable relationship with people, and we need to get it in our heads that the only hope and the only help for them is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they don't get that, you may be their best friend, but they'll die and go to hell with you as their best friend. I'm not advocating being obnoxious, but I am advocating being a little stubborn. I am advocating having some stick to and some steadfastness. See, the sad truth is we just give up too easy in this day that we live in. We've grown soft. You know that. Most kids today, if they had to do what your parents did to survive, they'd just go lay down in the woods and starve to death. We've just gone soft as a society. We don't know what it is to face difficult situations and circumstances. And I'm merely saying that, guess what? You may not win them the first time you witness to them. You may not win them the second or third, the fourth or the fifth hundred time you witness to them. And the truth is, it may never be you that wins them. But don't think for one moment that your efforts have fallen on deaf ears in heaven or fallen to the ground on earth. These folks understood that they'd do whatever it took to get them to Christ. It's interesting that, that it's not just enough. Nobody would have faulted them, you understand. They did more than everybody else did. But until they took that roof up and let that man down, they hadn't done enough. And you know the sad truth is some of us think just because we darken a doorstep more than once a week at the house of God that we've done more than other folks and we're okay. But here's the question, not have you done something, not have you done more than others, but have you done enough to get the job done? Some of us think if we're willing to tell our loved ones not to drink around us or not to cuss around us that we've done enough. I don't tell them nothing but that you know God. That doesn't tell them how to know God. You may have done something, and God bless you for that. I'm not belittling that, but you've not done enough. I'm not saying that we can force anyone to be saved. You know that we can't. But I remember a story that was told to me once by a preacher. He said that he was traveling by bus, and he was witnessing to a man. And he spent 45 minutes on the bus with this man witnessing and witnessing and witnessing. And at the end of it, that man never got saved. But he looked at the preacher and he said this. He said, young man, I don't believe what you're telling me. But I believe that you believe what you're telling me. We can't make them believe what we're telling them. But we can make them believe that we believe what we're telling them. I don't mean it in the sense of being deceptive, but I mean it in this sense. Most of us... We couldn't even win ourselves to Christ.
We've grown so apathetic and just lethargic. The Christian life is old news to us. And the only time we ever witness is when God just about beats us over the head or when He dumps a sinner right in our laps and we'd be embarrassed to try to find a way out of it. I'm just simply saying that it's going to take some commitment. It's going to take some effort. It may not happen the first time or the second time. But don't think for one moment that God's not hearing your prayers. Can I give you one story and I'll close? Look, I'm closing my Bible. That shows you I'm serious. It was said of George Mueller, who was a great man of faith. He was not really a preacher, although he, he preached more than most preachers ever do. And he wasn't really a missionary, although he did serve in Germany. He operated orphanages in Bristol. He operated two orphanages, one of which at one time had a capacity of 2,000. George Mueller never had a committed amount of support given to his work. Folks would give gifts and God would bring in the rest. And it was said of George Mueller that he would pray day and night and day and night. Anytime there was a need, he'd right then, he'd stop and he'd pray and he'd, he'd ask God to provide it. And it was as though he just had an open line with heaven. It was unique. In that day that he lived in, very unique in our day. That George Mueller had two men that he had prayed for, each of them for 35 years. And one man, just moments before he died upon his deathbed, he called for George Mueller. And George Mueller came in and won him to Christ. 35 years he had prayed for that man. 35 years of watching the calendar flip over without seeing that man saved. Well, the other man, uh, well, I'm telling it wrong, but that's okay. That first man died. And the second man was a pallbearer at his funeral. And that second man, in carrying the casket to the grave, cried out and said, we need to stop. I need to be saved. And there upon that man's casket knelt down and asked Christ to come into his heart. Thirty-five years George Mueller prayed for those two. It took thirty-five years. But let me ask you something. How long has the devil had your loved one? We think we can pray for him once or twice. That ought to get the job done. How long has the devil had yours? It's going to take a little bit more than that. You see, God honored their faith because their faith honored God. I wonder how many of us, God's burdened our heart with a loved one this morning. And we'd be willing to exercise an effectual faith in God's ability to save them by making it a matter of personal prayer and a matter of personal interest and effort for us.